Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tom Haberstro, what is your favorite 80s food? Kevin, I was three years old in 1989, so... So Gerber's like... So rice and beans, Kevin. That's my favorite 80s food trend. Tom, you missed a beautiful world of Creole spice, blackened fish, and angel hair pasta, and the lunch pasta salad, and pesto, and fajitas for everyone. Too bad you weren't around to do that. Tom, this is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. of Los Angeles. We are propelled into the final five this week. I want to take stock of the season. How did we get here? Big week. The final five is set. Opening thoughts about the field. The regular season is over, Kevin. 
as we suspected, um, Voltaggio's there, Gregory's there, Melissa's there, Kevin Gillespie is there, and Stephanie, I think it's the big surprise of the season. Stephanie has made it this far, not because uh, she's not a great chef, but because she didn't really have a strong entrance for the first several episodes of the show. And here she is going to Italy and and really coming on strong. I, I feel bad for Malarkey because – you know, he, he seemed to get a little bit uh job there with, with the service. But as Tom Colicchio said, look, it wasn't it wasn't about that. It was the food, it was the duo. And he was he he had a little bit of a retribution redemption tour halfway through the season as well. And so I was sad to see him go. He's a great character. Maybe they can bring him back in uh in Italy like they did last season in Macau. It was one of those things where I think they kind of bring – sometimes they bring a, a group of chefs over to the finale. Yeah, so. you got to do like the sous chef business. In the finale, there's always like you get to pick your sous chefs. I'm going to miss Malarkey. I'm going to I'm gonna be honest. He's he's a character um, and, you know, uh, I, I wish Eric, of course, my I th- believe he was my third draft pick. I wish he was around. Um, but I really think, Kevin, this is the postseason we wanted. This is the field. It's very interesting. I mean, we obviously have some favorites. Uh, Stephanie has emerged as, I think, everybody's favorite underdog. What's interesting, if I can play arbitrary endpoint for a few minutes, Tom. Yeah, oh, I'm always who is the All right, who is the leading chef over the last three weeks in our point system? I'm going to say Melissa. No, Stephanie. Who is, and I'll go further, who is the leading chef over the last four weeks? Melissa. Stephanie. Whew. Two wins. She got a five. She got the close second this week. She, I think, won a, the, the two weeks ago. I think she won her first quick fire. So, so Tom, she is the underdog. I think, and and this is not to slight her. Uh, I, I think her personal chef uh, portfolio versus say these 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 prolific restaurateurs uh, puts her as somewhat of a disadvantage. I think we've noted that she may not be as creative. She's somebody. She's a chef that needs some parameters to start with, rather than just a creative chef who, who with a blank canvas, will just come up with something beautiful. But, but she has achieved competence. I think there are shades of Adrian mm. uh, from a few seasons ago, where the first two thirds of the season were about building confidence, and then once that confidence was instilled, look out. Because, um, but but also, I just love that we have an underdog. I love that we have an underdog in the field. Uh, by the way, what do we make of Final Five? It used to be Final Four. Am I correct? I, I thought so too. Um, I'd have to go back and check that. It is a larger field. Maybe that has to do with the Last Chance Kitchen um, returning, but that doesn't make too much sense. Maybe maybe they're just cutting one episode. I, I don't know. Um, but. I, I was a little nervous, and we'll get to this later. I was a little nervous with Gregory there at the final stage because I really was hoping that Gregory was going to make it to the finale. I need to see Gregory uh, at least have a chance to winning this competition. And it was the same kind of feeling that I had with Melissa a few weeks ago um, at the dinner with the moms uh, at the at the Mountain Getaway, the uh, Hot Ameri- Wet Hot American Summer f- challenge. I thought that Melissa might have been going home just the same way that Gregory without the prosciutto was going home. But I'm so happy to see that we have Gregory, Voltaggio, Melissa, Stephanie, and Kevin going forward. Yeah, I mean, Gregory's had a, a rough couple of weeks, right? I mm. mean, he had the kind of under-season rice dish um, and the Kaiseki challenge. You know, even that – even that uh, I, I thought that quick fire, the, the coconut milk chocolate curd that was just beige more than anything – Forgot his prosciutto crisps. We'll talk a little bit about that in, in, in a few minutes. So he's had a bumpy few weeks. I mean, I, I think the change of scenery will certainly bring him back to the top, uh, toward the top. But um, it, it's a really interesting field. I, I mean, it's got it stacked. It really is. I, I think you could make an argument for four of the five chefs. I mean, even Voltaggio, who, you know, has had, I think, a very – Eh, meh, regular season. I think I think the, the parallel you drew a few weeks ago was sort of a LeBron Cavaliers team. You know the switch is going to be flipped at some point, but, but until it's pretty dark until that uh, that switch is flipped. Yeah. But but I mean he's I think cooked more interesting food in the last few weeks. And again, I've always said that I think as we get deeper into the competition and those the, the goofy parameter, hey, cook upside down, blindfolded, you know, sort of stuff gives way to, hey, here's some time to create 
something with, with fewer parameters. I think he's going to be a very tough customer. Melissa is just magic right now. I mean, she's mm-hmm. back on track. Whatever whatever throat clearing happened a few weeks ago, she is she is back. Uh, and of course, as you said, Gregory, who I think was, you know, was our first pick, was your first pick. And right now and he's number one in points. Right, number one in points. I think he was the morning line favorite for much of the competition. And then, of course, Stephanie. So, I mean, hey, I'm telling you, the facts are the facts. In the past month, she has essentially been the, if you go by scoring, the top chef. Yeah. So, um, we'll start with the uh, with I think probably one of your favorite and my favorite quick fire challenges ever. Make some <laughs> airplane food and and have champagne Padma. That was By the so, way, she was drunk. She was drunk. It was hilarious. She was shit faced. I mean, she yeah, was totally, totally, totally bombed. I mean, she it, looked like Allison and Eric and my Eric at uh, in Lexington. Yes, yes. We, we, for those who don't know, we went to a restaurant wars a couple of years ago. Uh, it was was it last year? It was. No, ago? it was two years ago. Two it years was- ago, we we drove over to uh, Lexington from Louisville, which is about an hour-ish drive. And when we got there, they just served us drinks to wait and wait and wait when we got to Restaurant Wars in the airplane hangar or whatever it was that we went to. And we had to wait so long that they just gave us a bottle of wine. They gave – I think of a bottle of rosé. They just were like straight up, here, here you go. We're so sorry for the delay. And we were – we were. you know what? We had way more fun. And I think Padma, this was her, her, her biggest performance of the season so far. And I think everyone, when you're on Top Chef in Last Chance Kitchen – I feel like everyone who's guest judging should have just a couple drinks in there to just get the emotions going. Because in the Last Chance Kitchen, when you saw the uh, when you saw the peanut gallery, like I kind of felt like you, you got to give them just a few drinks before before we get out there on on the stage. And this one, she and Jonathan Waxman just were were halfway in the back. It was fun. It was great. I mean, it was truly hilarious. You, you, were you um, excited to see the airline challenge? Because I felt like oh, you must have just perked up a little bit on this one, huh? I mean, look, one of my my great sort of completest goals is to kind of like I I'm, I have two out of the three Gulf carriers in my in my pocket now. I like I want to experience all the leading international airlines um, because you know we're fortunate enough to travel so much for work and i'm one of those like kind of george clooney and up in the air points whores that i have just a ton of points so i spend them largely on international first class and business class tickets so it's not like i'm fancy pants i just trade in on my travel for i mean that's where i spend those points and so i've been treated to like i mean one of the great experiences uh, sort of consumer experiences in my life was getting to fly um etihad airways um, home, one of the longest flights in the world, Abu Dhabi to LAX, 16 hours. Oh. And I was in first class, not even business, first class. And the chef comes over. There's like a chef. What? Comes over and, and basically, you know, two or three hours in a flight says, let's design your tasting menu. What? And just kind of came over with a pad and sort of all these choices and asked what kind of food I generally gravitate to and what kind of flavors. And they put together, I kid you not, Tom, like a six-course meal, Middle Eastern flavors. Like it was one of the coolest culinary experiences. I mean, look, I don't know that the food – I mean the food was delicious. I don't know that it was like one of the 10 best meals I've ever had. But when you include context and just environment – and I was in one of these like suites where like it was truly like a, a room to myself. Um, wow. It was unbelievable. And it was just like – so I, I really kind of made a point to try to sample as many of the great airline meals. Like you know, Emirates was nothing to slouch at. Um, I've had great experiences on Singapore Air. El Italia for all of its issues has great food as, as you might imagine. So so this was such a thrill. Like Tom, I got I, I got off on this challenge. This was so fun. Oh yeah, and and the whole hype factor. So I guess, you know, when Tom Colicchio, by the way, if you haven't listened to the the episode, we had an interview with Tom Colicchio. It was awesome. One of the things he mentioned when we gave him his pitch, where we we delivered our pitch to him, he was like, "What's the challenge?" I, like if my producers in my ear saying, "What's the challenge, guys?" And in this sense, it's not just, hey, put it on a tray. It's it can't be too tall, right? And so that's one of the elements that Kevin Gillespie screwed up on, which he shouldn't have screwed up on because his grandfather is an airline executive, Kevin. We need to know, know more about easy. this. Do you think he's which, Delta because he's Atlanta? 
I would imagine it's Delta Airlines since he is an Atlanta guy. And um, by the way, that is one of the great privileges. Like when you have a you know high level you know management or above executive for an airline, you just you as he said, you go business and first all the time. <laughs> oh man, um, you know it, it was sort of interesting, and I and I thought I, I thought Vol, uh, Voltaggio had a good point, and which is and. Basically, Melissa followed this rule, Kevin to some extent, and Greg, which is Gregory, which is you want something braised because one of the problems, like like I'm a guy who always order fish at a decent restaurant if, if there's an if there's an alternative there that uh, that draws me. But the problem is you can dry stuff out. Like you need bra- the great thing about braising is like it's hard to overdo it. It only you know if you if you just kind of because a slow roast by gen- by in general is just. And retains its moisture, so yeah. I thought that was very smart. He did the braised chicken thighs. Kevin did, you know, a lamb meatball, which, you know, I mean, not not exactly braised, of course, but uh, the gra- the grandma sala chicken from from Gregory, uh, and then you had, of course, the, the the curry beef curry mushroom and coconut rice. I mean, Melissa kind of wins on. You don't want to make it too cute for the airplane. You just want something savory. You know, if coconut rice, it, it will just it, it'll it'll stand up. Tofu salad, I was a little skeptical because I think like, is the world into tofu yet? I mean, is that something that most people kind of look, you know, you unveil the, the little dish and it's like mm, tofu salad. I mean, that was the only question I could, I was imagining one of the judges saying, hey, you know, in Top Chef, of course, a tofu salad is, makes a ton of sense. That, is that a crowd pleaser? Is there a lot of people who can press that little spongy substance and say, what the hell is this? Is, is, is this ignorant to say that outside of vegetarians – does anyone like tofu? Like, no, I, I do. I, I li- like. I'm I, saying, I like, if you, if you had a choice between meats and a tofu dish, I'm not I'm not sure you're choosing the tofu over that. Right, but I mean, the one thing I've really discovered, you know, I think in like the 80s and 90s when it was purely like sort of the the province of of you know crunchy health food types, like like tofu in this country has come a long way. Like like a beautiful, clean, like a Japanese restaurant that does makes up their, you know, makes their own uh, tofu. That place in Vegas we like. Um, yeah. What's that place called? I forget. God, it's escaping me. Oh, Aburi Araku. Like they do a beautiful homemade tofu. Um, I love like going to the Chinese restaurant. And you get like that sticky tofu, uh, not the mapo, but the stuff that's sort of almost has the texture of eggplant. It's just really, really good. Um, so I, I think that it's come a long way, but I yes. just think that you, uh, there's a large population of people who will look at a tofu appetizer, and I really thought she was going to get dinged for that. But I guess it was so delicious with the yuzu and the cucumber, um, especially against the, the you know the savoriness of, of, of the beef curry that it just worked. And yeah. I mean, her food is just so damn good right now. It is. And I want to I wanna take a detour real quick on this because, um, Kevin, I'm sure you're a, an average reader or at least familiar with thepointsguy.com. Oh, of course. I mean, uh, Ben is is a guy who I will uh, – oh, no, that's view is, – is Ben pointsguy.com? What I yeah. – what you need to know or is that, is Gary that there Which is – Which one is – There is a long post about the science of airplane food. Written by Michael Y. Park on, okay, on I'm that check website. It out. Okay, so I read it, and there's this one little section here that I think bears repeating it for this episode because it's it's so interesting to me. You mentioned how it dries out on the on the uh, flights, and I think it's something we have to keep in mind when we're uh, evaluating this challenge. Here's here's what not to put on an airline menu. Chefs have also learned to avoid certain pitfalls and problem foods when they're designing airline menus. Bread goes stale fast at altitude. And unless it's a necessary part of a sandwich, airline chefs generally try to serve bread only when it's just out of the oven. You'll rarely find French fries on an airplane menu because fried foods become impossibly mushy. Mineral heavy wines taste less like slate and more like plain old dirt among the clouds. And that's why onboard wine lists favor sweeter, fruitier options. Cruciferous, is that the pronunciation? Cruciferous vegetables such as broccoli give off an unpleasant odor as they're reheated, which is relatively minor detail. It does. It smells like a fart. (laughs) When you open a window. But another thing when you're seated in a sealed aluminum tube with 400 other people. And speaking of unpleasant gases, cruciferous 
veggies and beans tend to make people flatulent, which no one wants. So you'll generally see them used in moderation, if at all, in airline meals. Still, even with everything airlines have learned, there can be missteps, taking perhaps the wrong lesson from the Spence study that said in altitude, you have a greater sense of umami levels. Virgin Australia served passengers on its Perth to Adelaide route Parmesan sandwiches on Christmas Day last year, thinking that the cheese's inherent savoriness would be an extraordinary treat in the air. But unfortunately, the odor from the cheese, which Mm -hmm. one witness described as, quote, old socks, quickly filled the cabin and made passengers who didn't order the sandwiches gag and vomit. Quote, it was sweaty socks. Their brains were telling them that they were smelling not pressed Parmesan sandwiches, Spence says. So, Kevin... What is the worst airline meal or something that you, that you just cannot have on a flight that just irritates you when people open it, whether it was prepackaged going on to the uh, flight or just something that filled the cabin air that you remember or, or something that just bothers you over the years? Fish, I mean, reheated fish, is, it, they can't be serving that. No, I mean, I, there's a lot of good fish on airplanes. I mean, when people bring on next to you, hey, look, man, I'm somebody who appreciates a good pastrami or corned beef sandwich but don't open that shit on the plane <laughs> if you're sitting in like economy or whatever like that's just gross like i really i have to say something um i it, it kind of and as much as i love food and i understand they don't feed you on these flights anymore but i just don't want your like at 7 30 in the morning i don't want your smelly bacon biscuit yeah right i know me. i and know you, doing the crumbs on my and it yeah it's just like come on i mean i look it's a free country, but I, it, it's just, I don't like overly smoky meats, even though I love, you know, typically love smoky meats. It's just, yeah, I wish people would exercise a little more restraint in the cabin, just a little more. Yeah. Like sometimes yeah, there's a Bojangles here uh, in, in Charlotte airport. And a lot of people like get their breakfast sandwich Bojangles to bring out their, their Cajun filet biscuit, which is delicious. Oh, it's really, amazing. I mean, we have had the Bojangles conversation on this podcast. Yes. Yes. So, you know, they wrap it in that like kind of aluminum uh, foil t- type uh, uh, wrap. And then you bring it onto the plane. And then when you open that up, that thing is is like filling up the entire cabin with that 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 Cajun fillet biscuit smell, which it, in a, in an open room like outside, you're not really sensing that smell too much. But when you're inside of a cabin, it can really really incapacitate some people. So I hear that, and I think in this episode with top with Top Chef, I I did like that they penalized Kevin for his his meatballs being over the size of the tray. I don't know. I don't know if I like the bread that they give you on airplanes, but I do know that I like the butter they bring it with. I find that I don't really put butter on bread very often until I'm on a on a flight. I'm throwing so much salt on my food, like when they give those little pepper and salt shakers that are so adorable. I just I just use every condiment on my plate. I don't know about you. All right. Yeah, you know, one weakness to that point I have on planes, like a bad plane food that I actually enjoy is like those croissants, those spongy kind of not great croissants that they give you in the morning on like, you know, right before you land on an international flight, particularly, and sometimes on a breakfast flight, if you're in business, like, and they're objectively not good croissants. I mean, we know what a good croissant, but like, there's something about that sponginess and it's kind of, it's always cold and it shouldn't be. Yes. And I still, I love just to like, I don't even use the knife for the butter. I just stick like, <laughs> like it's the a, spongy it's a croissant, like just kind of pick it up almost like injera with ethiopian food like i actually just kind of use use the 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 croissant as a pincher to just take the butter and just squish it yes that is one of my gross i cannot defend it culinarily uh favorite things on on like bad airline you know what's also weird um in this study that they did uh the science of airplane food is um when you're at altitude you lose a lot of your sense of uh, salt and sweetness, so they kind of jack it up a little bit on those on the food. Um, they also dry out a lot. Of course, you mentioned that earlier. So they they like to lather things with with like barbecue sauces, and they usually cook them with, you know, a gravy or some sort of base um, to keep the moisture up. And I, I another thing I do on flights that Kevin I don't understand why I always crave tomato juice. I don't know what it – maybe it is that saltiness. I don't know what it is. Even better, Tom, than tomato juice is Mr. and Mrs. T Bloody Mary mix. (laughs) 
with a little spice. Yeah, and I don't. I never order that in real life. Like I'm not going to lunch. I if I go to lunch somewhere, I usually just get water or 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 uh, or tea or something like that. But when I'm on a flight. I always crave the tomato juice. I always get the V8 or whatever it is, and it's and I don't know what it is. What, why is that? I don't know, but I, I totally understand because, and I feel ridiculous ordering a Virgin Mary because like I don't need, <laughs> I don't love to drink alcohol on a flight. I just, it just look. I love good wine. It just, it totally screws my head. It makes me feel nauseated. But like, I feel ridiculous, and I, I won't even do it if there's someone next to me. But like, <laughs> the shame I love like I've always love Mister and Mrs. T. Blooding. It's like my favorite processed food is Mister. My aunt Shirley in Charleston, South Carolina. As a little kid, like I, I went to spend a lot of time at her house and she always had Mr. and Mrs. T Bloody Mary mix and she mm. knew I loved it. She always kept it in the fridge and it was in that little can, that Hawaii, that Hawaiian punch high C can where you have to do the two little like little triangles on the, on the sides. Um, I think you grew up in a different era, but like we just had a lot of like, like fluids in these big aluminum cans. I mean, these oversized aluminum cans. I mean, they were, they were nasty, but that was sort of my thing as a kid and I still love it on a plane. Because it's only it's one of the few places you can get it, right? Like yep. you can. Um, I'm not going to. I just feel totally weird at a bar ordering a Virgin Mary. Of course. Um, but like Bloody Marys are good. Yeah. And that any play. Um, so wait, anyway, wait, yeah. I want uh, just one more thing here, and this is a good transition back to the Top Chef episode. Did you know about this chef on uh, Conclave? Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about. ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture you are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than butcher box so sign up at butcherbox.com dings d-i-n-g-s and get our special deal ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. The American no. Airlines chef conclave that Waxman had been part of with Alice Waters and with Wolfgang Puck. Did you did you catch that on the episode? No, no. What are they talking about? So what, uh, Jonathan Waxman was like, yes, uh, as part of the this uh, this quick fire, uh, I was part of the 1988 American Air. Well, he didn't name drop American Airlines on this, but uh, apparently there was a thing called the chef conclave, um, and it was. A group of not celebrity chefs because there weren't celebrity chefs back then, but it was notable chefs um, that high profile chefs that American Airlines hired to create their menus for their like international travel or long flights. And this dude, Jonathan Waxman, super famous chef, was part of this with Wolfgang Puck and Alice Waters. Back in 1988, Kevin. So, so they were the pioneers because this thing's been now, – now it's totally commonplace. So they, yes. when you get the little menu – in fact, you know who was the chef for a while I believe on Delta was our, uh, our favorite Michelle Bernstein from Miami. Oh, wow. Well, I, uh, She was – I remember like it was right after I think our Miami jaunt because I, I remember like, oh, this is cool. Michelle Bernstein's doing the food on Delta. Mm. I think it was Delta. Well, I also found out that Leanne Wong, who's got her hand in everything apparently – is the executive chef for Hawaiian Air. So she didn't get to be on this episode, but maybe Leanne, that we know from Chef Jen Carroll, um, 
how much she's a part of the planning process and the and the culinary uh, side of things and the and the stocking of food. Maybe she has her hand in this that we we didn't quite understand is that maybe Leanne Wong came up with this uh, airline challenge quick fire. She didn't get to enjoy it herself as a contestant, but I I really love this episode and and. Um, I think it just from start to finish with drunk Padma um, again, yeah. Stephanie with the champagne Padma line. She is, she is such a joy to have in these confessionals. Cause she has just got everything. Uh, you know, she's a great chef, but I think she's even better on the commentary. Right. As, one, as I've said, I think in the previous episode that uh, she wins my trapped in an elevator for two hours. contest. <laughs> um, and I felt really bad because her Papio just, like that parchment paper and uh, I felt terrible. And I think it was probably a really good dish if, if not for the, the, the Papio um, who else got dinged uh, malarkey for his, the, the pork chop that just was too tough. Um, and then the middlers were Voltaggio and Greg. Uh, the elimination challenge was also pretty amazing because Michael's is like, yeah, t- tell me about Michael's. All right. So like Michael's is, what we would now call old school in Los Angeles. Like I can't even describe it. It just, it feels like a place where like, I don't know, record executives in the early eighties. Like imagine David Geffen in a, in a party of four does like California French. So Cal French, it was this notion that, Hey, French food could be brightened by California produce. Um, You can, because French food, I think everybody loves, but it's sort of heavy and, what if we lighten it up and a way to lighten it up is sort of to incorporate these you know, California. So you just ended up in 80s food is hilarious. I mean, we kind of, I kind of mentioned my, my, my sort of all 80s food lineup, which was, I just remember like, I remember my mom getting really into blackened fish and, you know, <laughs> angel hair pasta because like 80s, you're starting to get a little health conscious. You don't want like the thick lasagna and angel hair is sort of light. I grew up and on angel hair pasta, by the way. My exactly. mom loved to make angel hair pasta. Moms loved angel hair pasta. Like the lunch salad, like the idea and, and particularly lunch pasta salad, like that was a big 80s thing. Like you started seeing pesto everywhere. Um, fajitas like the Tex-Mex movement like fajitas for everybody it's not just a thing like that got introduced and man like the sizzling plate of fajitas like all these Tex-Mex places I remember there was a place in Atlanta I grew up with called Rio Bravo uh owned and founded by this Jewish couple obviously and um like we loved Rio Bravo and we loved the fajitas and the chili con queso and um I just like Tex-Mex so 80s was sort of this hey the first introduction of I feel like culinary ambition. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. It just happens to be the decade I grew up in, but I just feel like like food before that was just exactly what you would imagine, just kind of like what they used to eat on Mad Men. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I felt like this episode was, was like a trip to the 70s, uh, uh, Mad Men style, where it was, um, you know, with the airline, the airline boom in the 50s. I just felt like this was a real nostalgic trip down memory lane for for the culinary world. And it seemed like what a cool little reunion at the table with with this Michael's challenge. And um, it was I, I thought Michael McCarty just seemed delightful. I thought he was a great, um, you know, host for this whole entire thing. And I haven't been to Michael's in Santa Monica, but I imagine there's a couple places in Miami that are kind of like this. And I just wanted to go. It just seemed what a cool place that was. Yeah. I mean, I went, like, I feel like, I mean, I've been out here now 23 years and I remember going with family friends who were staying. Like it's a place where if your parents friends come out to Los Angeles and take you out or something. And cause I, it's like, I've never, I, I've never even been, had the urge to go. I mean, it's, I mean, it's definitely old school. It's not a menu that today would really inspire me, but it is, it's fun now that we're long enough into the foodie movement that you can actually say, haha, there are these eighties trends in food. Like that <laughs> yeah. was a long time ago, yeah. the big hair and the belts, um, you know, kind of that we can look back at eighties fashion as well, but the idea that there are these dishes. So it was kind of fun to watch them reimagine. I thought Stephanie picked very smart for her, right? The pasta and scallops, because it's just an easy thing to recreate. And I, you could already see Gregory's apprehension when he was sort of, he, he, he was like, well, he was fifth or sixth last to choose. And the monkfish beet risotto with pancetta was just, you could already see he was having trouble reconfiguring yeah the components yeah melissa then, melissa by virtue of winning the quickfire she got the first pick she went with quail 
Um, Gillespie went with Duck. Steph went with uh, the Angel Hair and Scouts. Waltagia went with the Lamb. Then Gregory went with Monkfish and Prosciutto. And Malarkey ended up with the Veal Sweetbreads. Which he was excited about, but you could already see it was it was a it was a dish that played to his worth's habits. Yeah. Right. It encouraged the sprawling craziness because it was these two things and they could do two different things. And and like whereas you could see Stephanie, there's pasta and there is scallops. You know, and and he would have been better served by that. Because it just – this notion that there were two proteins was like, oh, shit. Malarkey is going to go malarkey. There's no th- – this is the most sprawling dish on the menu, and he is the most sprawling chef, and it is one of his – it is truly his Achilles heel. And you just saw it coming from a mile away. Yeah, and I, I feel bad – excuse me. I feel bad for him on the on – the, the servers not serving the judges table that seems like a nightmare especially in the in the close quarters in that kitchen it just seemed like a closet that they were working in and just seems so chaotic and i want to um i want to feel bad for malarkey on that level but then you know doing a duo the hit rate on that has got to be um Who's the first the uh, the first baseman for the Orioles now? Who's get, who bats two hundred every year? Well, the Mendoza line is is the classic line, but what's his um, it, whatever the duo in in Top Chef history is probably batting one seventy five, right? All right, because like, the only can I say something? I can't believe like Eddie Murray is the only first baseman in the Baltimore Orioles who ever matters. Well, this oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I guess, like it's, it's 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 sacrilege to mention any Oriole first baseman other than Eddie Murray. Wait, I feel like Rafi Palmero's on there too. Yeah, yeah. I guess he was a Ranger. He wasn't a really. An I I get that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what I'm I'm gonna have to Google this at some point. But anyway, so I feel like the duo is if it's not risotto level, it is just right below risotto level. And I, I hope Lynn can do a study on this is, uh, is the, the success rate of a duo. I also want to correct himself. It just dawned on me, like Frank Robinson should qualify too. <laughs> like, like maybe, I mean, it's a little before my time. Yeah. To your point, the problem with the duo is it gives you two f- chances to fuck up, right? It's always the, why give the judges, if even if you nail one, the other is going to be, you just, you more ways to fail. What was interesting about it is with the exception of Gregory, I felt like, this was the perfect elimination challenge headed into the finals because each of those other five chefs were exactly – it was a perfect illustration and demonstration of who they are as chefs. Like like Kevin, he didn't finish in the top two, but you know he roasted duck and then did something classically Gillespie, right? Let's make the rice yeah. into a savory croquette, right? Like, oh. like let's create this other – like beautiful, completely out of left field element to incorporate things you never thought could be incorporated that way. Let's just do a croquette. And I just thought that was wonderful. Like, you know, Stephanie, we talked about it. Um, You know, she just created these simple components that she knew how to execute. And what came of it was just gorgeous. Um, You know, Voltaggio, Right. He took the lamb with the currants and, a, by the way, another classic 80s dish, Palato Galette with the little <laughs> sheets looking like a flower. So he just voltageized it, right? Roasted lamb is now gorgeously cut in this beautiful symmetrical circle, you know, a cab cassis sauce rather than that the, the thick currant. So let's thin it out and then turn the potato into a fondant, which I thought was a pastry. I guess that's like a potato pastry now because I always associated fondants with like pastry but um but it was just voltaggio-ish right and then malarkey was to a fault malarkey-ish and then melissa bless her heart like she's just going to take these components that are simple yet when you look at the entire thing together it is complex she manages to achieve simplicity and complexity all at once it is why she is on top right now and i mean not in our scoring system but just i think she is the strongest chef right now in the competition and it was a beautiful demonstration of all five finalist chefs of who they are. Yeah, and and Melissa with the rare double win. She wins the quick fire, wins the elimination challenge, 13 points in our scoring system. And it's tough to make it's t- quail is not easy to cook. Quail can dry up real fast cuz it's not real fatty and it's and there's not a lot of meat on that bone literally. And so when you cook quail, you need you need a you have a very slim margin for error. And so I think when when you choose that at the top, got a little bit nervous on that level, but Melissa 
anything she chooses, I can't doubt her because everything that she has chosen in, in the past, when she has had the ability to choose, she absolutely nails it. She executes to perfection. And I felt um, – I want to talk about the Brooke Williamson um, horror story that she gave where she, the only time <laughs> that, that she had cried in a, in, a, in a kitchen was when at that restaurant cooking the lamb dish when she got like a, a bazillion orders for lamb at all very different te- temperatures. And I just felt so – my heart broke for her in that moment because I was like, I'm getting stressed out just even thinking about that. Um, what a murderer's row of just talent on this. You had, you had Sang Yoon. You had Brooke Williamson. They mentioned Nancy Silverton came out of that kitchen. Mark Peel. Um, he's kind of a, um, a guy that I don't know. I don't know if I would be able to know him. I mean, name his name. But when I see him on the TV, I'm like, oh, I know that guy. I've seen him on a bunch of TV shows. So Mark Peel, also from this, uh, this uh, Michaels and then Roy Yamaguchi. So this was a really cool, almost a finale uh, dinner experience. And I also caught, did you notice the people in the background? This was a very intimate back patio and when shit was going sideways with malarkey you could kind of sense the entire restaurant was watching this table there wasn't a lot of seats and so i felt like it was pressure cooker from start to finish with this elimination challenge the tight kitchen the fact that when you serve to the the judges table everyone is watching whereas in other restaurant scenarios it's not quite on top of you like that. So I thought this was uh, I thought this was a really cool challenge. I learned a lot about California cuisine, and I'm sad to see Malarkey go. But you know, when you give that little the little vignette, the little segment about you know FaceTiming with your kids on on her, their his twins' ninth birthday, it always seems ominous in those moments. And I and let's talk about Malarkey's little breakdown at judges' table. What did you yeah. think that? What did you think about so- that? Going back to Mark Peel, a couple of things like oh. he is Nancy Silverton's ex-husband, and so he is, you know, was a partner in Little Brea Bakery and the Campanile that that whole complex that that really is as definitively kind of two thousand aughts Los Angeles as as, as anything. Um, he also lost money in the Madoff thing. I think both of them got totally screwed uh. by Madoff, um, which is an interesting and just hellacious outcome. Um, yeah, the malarkey thing is interesting because so. Like the truth of the matter is that whole the plates disappearing or going to the wrong table didn't affect him. And I I sort of – it was a little bit of BS for him to kind of almost – it seemed like he was ascribing his failures during the the challenge to that when actually the plates were already set. And so it wasn't like – and they made it very clear you are not judged on that. We are not going to dock you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, It was also the the whole kind of almost – I mean it did speak to what Flam talked about, which is – this is not a guy who needs the needs the show, right? I mean, he's he's. I think as Padma or Tom said, he's worth probably more than both of us. Yep. And you could almost see it in his farewell, where it's like, "Hey, I've had a nice run. I've kind of gotten what I needed to get out of this, which is a little, and apparently, is you know, some more face time to really assert himself as somebody who could care." Look, I got to tell you, I might watch a, a malarkey cooking show or, or a fun reality show. Like, like he's a character and and has, um. I mean, I imagine he's pretty entertaining. So you could almost sense that his farewell, what Padma even had to say, are, are you are you basically bowing out <laughs> yeah. of the competition, yeah. was an expression of what Flam told us a few weeks ago, which is this is not a guy who needs this to win this competition to get himself on the map. He's not only on the map, like he holds the map. And so that wasn't surprising. And again, I mean, I think, you know, whatever problems Greg we had. I don't think anybody was watching the judges, you know, the two elimination chefs on the uh, the two chefs on the block, and saying, "Oh, Gregory might go home." I mean, I think it was pretty clear that it was Malarkey's week to go home. And and I wanted to hit this because it is a huge pet peeve of mine when I'm playing cards with someone or a board game or anything when when it's a head to head moment, if you're playing chess or whatever it is, when your opponent quits or says oh i've gotten such bad cards today like i I never get the never get the good cards you always get the good cards and starts quitting and you can see them start to kind of surrender i hate that it's it's a, a passive aggressive way to steal the sweetness and joy of being the victor in any sort of board game or card game and that's what gregory was talking about here is 
I don't like when he jumped in and said like, dude, no, I think you should on your own merits, stand here and face the music and let's go down together. Let's, let's go to judge's table. And he said it in his confessional. I did not want to go to Italy because you quit. I wanted to go there because I deserved to be there. And I think that was such a, a great moment from Gregory just to say that because I hate when people do that is when when you're feeling like you're not going to win, you just steal any sort of joy or any sort of satisfaction that your opponent can get by just saying, I'm out. I quit. This is not fair. I'm just going to take my bag, my ball and go home. You didn't beat me. I just quit. I, I just that would that would have dri- driven me crazy if I was Gregory. I'm glad he called him out on that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I. It, it was Gregory's pretty assertive, and we saw it in the in the Restaurant Wars episode too. Like he's a really affable, friendly guy when you get him in the side interviews. But you know, you know, he he, he will stand up for himself. That fish is I'm not going out in some fucking uncooked fish. He said, and he is not going out because Malarkey laid down. I mean, nobody likes, as you say, the person who takes his ball and goes home. Yeah, and, and, and are you worried about yeah. Gregory? No, no. I mean, look, I think we've seen that every chef. On, of all the five finalists that had a dry period, right? Melissa did it a few weeks ago. Gregory's hit a little dry period. Voltaggio didn't do didn't do shit for like a, the first month and a half of the competition. You know, Stephanie didn't do shit the first month and a half of the competition. Uh, Gillespie went out for crying out loud, and frankly hasn't dazzled. Although he's cooked, he's put together some really strong dishes that haven't won in the last few weeks. But you know, everyone's had their burp. And what's going to be fun is going to Italy. My understanding, and I think we know this from previous chefs, that there's quite a hiatus between the last week of the American site yep. and the first week. Like I understand they go home and then it's later. So you know, it's interesting in terms of momentum. And I do think this is a momentum show. And I think what we just talked about, how each chef has some bad stretches and gets into a slump, Ooh. that it is very much a momentum show. But this will – there's a hiatus here. That, that, that'd be a you know, great study is is the point the point leader going into the finale more likely to win overall or is it just a free-for-all at that point is does momentum like momentum in, in terms of just the, being the point leader after 11 episodes or 10 episodes is that a greater indication of winning or is it just totally random once you get to the finale I'd imagine there is some correlation between how you performed yeah. for the first 11 episodes and then the finale. Um, but who do you find yourself rooting for the most? Because all these all these contestants haven't won. And so Voltaggio might be the most decorated of the chefs. Both Yet on he the is sh- in fifth place right. right now among our five. But he is trailing Stephanie, 37 points. Yeah. Stephanie has 39 Kevin Gillespie, KG, has 49. Melissa has 60. And Gigi, Gregory, has 63. So they've separated the field from the field a little bit. Gregory and Melissa. I think Kevin, probably points per game, is probably right there with them uh, because he he had to kind of go to Last Chance Kitchen for a while. But um, I find myself rooting for Melissa. And I I don't know why. Um, I just think... She is, I, I like Gregory. You know what? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm rooting for Gregory now that I think about it. If who would I be most upset if they didn't get to win Top Chef? And you know what? I'm going to change that. I'm going to say Gregory. I would be most heartbroken about. I mean, it sounds crazy. This is going to sound like a cop out. Like I really like all five of them for different reasons. Like I like Stephanie because she's the underdog, and it's really nice to see someone the way I was sort of in Adrian stan in a couple seasons ago uh, i like kevin because he's a, i mean i love his food and he's an atlanta guy so you know i have some solidarity there i love melissa because it's just like again like watching steph you know in 2015 like she's just an amazing chef and i kind of i, you know, I really like her food i love Altagio because the truth is i'm also a sucker for really it elevated technical food like i love going to a restaurant and eating that kind of food i, I love his plates they're beautiful and i love gregory because man he's just is a player like he you know as i said i mean there when he is on man he is on he understands the competition you know he has the perfect combination kind of like melissa of bringing you know like knowing what food to cook in what context but also bringing a little bit of yourself 
to the competition. Yeah. Like there is a personal a personal expression. And, and so I'm really a fan of all five. I mean, on one hand, it's like, yeah, I, I'm, it's a comp out. I'm not rooting for or against anybody. But on the other hand, I'm not going to be upset if any of these chefs win because I just love the I mean, Maybe, okay, you know, Voltaggio's had his moment in the sun and whatever, but I think like, I love Voltaggio's food. I mean, come on. So I, I like all five, I Tom. Know. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a softy. I know. And Gre- Gregory is another reason why I really love Gregory it's because even though he's a super competitor, he's also just genuinely really considerate of other chefs. And he's just so nice to everybody. And they seem to love him. I, You know, it's kind of like the LeBron versus Michael Jordan is who would you rather play with? And I'd rather play with LeBron. It just seems like he's he's just more fun because he, he's more of a team player incorporating everybody else. And he's, uh, he passes you the ball, and that's one of his great gifts is that he wants the teamwork. And I feel like Gregory is in the same way where you, you see those moments with Nini earlier in the show and Steph. He just seems to be a real team player without being, you know, without losing some of his talent. And I think that's a really hard balance to strike is not being too over the top trying to help everybody with losing focus on your own dish. He just seems like someone who's, um, the ultimate top chef competitor. Yeah. I mean, I really, uh, you know, I, he, he is, uh, he's so, again, he's so likable. like, I love, you know, I love his manner and his, just even his use of language in these interviews, you know, it's just, he, he kind of articulates the gestalt of the whole competition. I think this is cool. Like, you know, I, I really, you know, I like the guy. So anyway, I mean, any closing thoughts, I, you know, we're going off to Italy here, Tuscany. Um, some of the cradle of Italian cuisine. It's going to be really fun just to watch him work. Uh, any closing thoughts? I love truffle. I love tr- <laughs> I'm such a sucker for truffle. Um, I would love to get, I would love to go on a hunting trip for truffles and it seems like they're about to embark on a hunt for, uh, for truffles. It sounds really cool. Um, I have never been to Tuscany. I've only, I've been to Rome. I've been to uh, Florence. I've been to Cinque Terre. I have not been, well, if you've been to Florence, you've been to Tuscany. I guess. Kinda. Yeah, I guess. You haven't done like the countryside no, thing? No, I yeah. haven't done the countryside thing. And so um, any sort of crib sheet you can give me here on, on Tuscan food or, or what, are your, what are your things you're looking forward to about this trip? I mean, I, it's, it's just, just so pasta and, and am I, I mean, it's a little pasta, but they, I mean, there's definitely some kind of, you know, you know, country cooking and it's, you know, there, there's a certain rusticness to it, but, uh, I mean, it's going to be really fun. I'm, I'm just, also, I love the field as we've said a million times. I just like this fivesome. Yeah. And I, I probably, I probably, this is a cop out, but I think the points leader is the favorite at this point. I think Gregory is the favorite. Uh, the number one draft pick, it's pretty cool to say in a season of All-Stars, the number one draft pick coming into the competition is still, in my opinion, the favorite going into the finals. Although right there is Melissa, Melissa just yeah. mowing people down. Yeah, and I, I think the, what they have in common is they both know how to manage risk in a challenge and yet not sacrificing creativity. Anyway. So for Tom Haberstroh, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Pack Your Knives.